Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Mm, which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Cat Disgusted, a podcast for veterinary technicians and the people and animals who love them. Each episode, we explore the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. I'm an RVT working in emergency and critical care. BTSCCC. And this is what happens. Whoa, what's up, you guys? Remember me? Yeah, I'm back. I'm back. Uh, I had to actually look up how long it had been since I've been able to record one of these episodes. It's been half a year. Half a year since I've sat in front of this microphone in my house in front of the cat and uh, done one of these podcast episodes. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) I've been a little bit busy with some things, which you may or may not have recognized. I don't know how many of you guys who listen to this show listen to the intro anymore, because you know, it's like you've heard it once. You've like, I I fast forward through Fresh Air's intro. Okay, so it's okay. But I added a little thing in there. I freaking did it. I did it, you guys. I got the extra letters after my name. And that explains the half a year absence, actually, which I thought I would talk a little bit about because I know I've referenced it a couple times, but I got my uh, accreditation for veterinary technician specialty in emergency and critical care, which is a huge deal in my itty bitty little tiny little world of um, caring for furry things. Uh, I've dedicated two years of my life uh, getting that certification done. Uh, the first year is the application process, which is, I think, what I probably talked about the most on here. That's the one where I have to log all these cases of cases that I've treated and uh, with their diagnoses and their patient number and their signalment and all the things that I did, including you know the non-invasive blood pressure or central line or uh, IV fluid, CRI calculations, all that stuff, all the fancy drugs, all the fancy things. And then I have to write up a bunch of case reports and I have to submit all this continued education um, stuff and my license. So the application is 79 pages long and that doesn't include the pages of my case reports, which are five pages each. So it's a bit of a thing. So that was the first year. And then the second year uh, is dedicated to studying for uh, the examination that happens once a year at the emergency and critical care conference uh, in a different location every year. So, and it only happens once a year. So it's like you have this one time that if your application gets accepted to, you know, to fly to whatever city it's in and take that test. Now you can take the test three times after your application is accepted, but I did not want to do that. I wanted to pass it on the first try. Uh, So I went to New Orleans this year and I took that test. Now, when I went to New Orleans to take this test, uh, I signed a piece of paper that says that I can't talk about this test. So I'm a podcaster taking the most important test to date in my life 
that I can't talk about. But what I can talk about is my experience around it uh, and, and how I felt about it before and after the event of taking the test. So you basically get a little less than a year to study for this thing. Now, the things that you have to know for this test are crazy. Um, you, you have to know what words like uh, plesthmography. You have to know what afferent versus efferent neuron uh, pathways are. You have to know respiratory versus metabolic compensation for a systemic white acidosis or alkalosis. You have to know a lot of details about things that mostly doctors have to know in medical school. So someone once referred to this process as uh, it's like getting your, it's like going to veterinary, you know, veterinary medicine school to be a DVM, except with no debt and it's only a year long. <laughs> it's kind of true. Uh, it's a huge amount of information. Uh, it's a very stressful process to get all that information into your head after you find out your application is accepted. It's actually less than a year, which I think is probably why this podcast hasn't been updated for about that period of time. It literally is about the period of time of me studying for that for for the exam between uh, episode thirty one and thirty two. So. I went to New Orleans. They take you take the exam on the first, uh, like one of the first days of the conference, which I was thankful for because I didn't want to stress for days, you know, at this conference and be distracted the whole time waiting for it to descend upon me. I met up with a bunch of people that were part of a Facebook group uh, called VTS or Bust, which are a bunch of wonderful, wonderful people that all supported each other throughout studying and throughout the application process. So it was nice to put some faces to the names that you see in social media. I thought that was pretty cool. And so before the test, everyone's nervous, but feeling okay. Like, you know, like everyone's, we reviewed a little bit of the hard stuff the day before we all met out. We were all kind of sitting in a circle outside the conference room the day of, you know, before we got to take the test. It was at noon. So I really appreciate the time of day being an emergency swing shift technician. I was glad I didn't have to get up at the ass crack of dawn to take this exam. After the exam was over, I felt horrible. I did not finish that exam. I didn't go in with a test-taking strategy, and I ran out of time. I am not used to taking tests where I don't know the answers. Like for me, you know, I, I studied really hard. I knew a huge amount of information, and yet these questions were so difficult that I couldn't answer them like, I didn't know what the answer was. Like, it didn't come easily. And they make it that way on purpose. Um, I feel like they make it, they, they make it feel impossible on purpose. Like, it, that, that's, how they, that's how everyone feels. Like, you know, what's so crazy is that we all were before this test, like, all sitting and chatting with each other. And then after the test was over, it was a ghost town. I barely saw anybody. I ran into a couple people by the elevator and everybody was just, I mean, pale. I, in particular, was because I felt like I did really poorly. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do it the way that I wanted to. And everyone was very, I have to say, like one of the candidates who, who I saw at the elevator who was taking the test for the second time. And by the way, the majority of the people that I met were taking the test for the second time. Because that it's it, it, there's no real there's no class like the MCAT there's no class like the bar exam 
we don't have four years of veterinary medicine schooling to guide us how to take this test. It's all self-motivated. So I feel like taking it a second time is not a failure. It's like you don't know what you're getting into until you actually get there. And it's almost like a practice test. So that's how I was thinking of it. But I was devastated by, by feeling like I did so poorly. And this very nice candidate who I met, who was not from anywhere near me, I think she's from the East Coast, had had told me that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself and kind of smiled and like, look, you know what? Like when, when, when certain people like look you in the eye and they're really listening to you, like I felt like that's what this person did. And I, for a second, like was able to let go of all the guilt and terror and disappointment to accept that. But just like momentarily, you know, momentarily I was able to let that go and then it was all flooding back again. But thank you to that person. I think you know who you are. I... Spent the next six weeks thinking that I failed that exam and planning to take it again. Uh, the next IVEX, IVEX is the, the critical care conference. Um, it's in Washington, D.C. And so I was already thinking like, oh, that flight is longer and I hate planes. But I was already planning my life to take that test again in Washington, D.C. Uh, because it, I didn't feel I did I was 99.999% sure that I had failed it. Now, I met with several people who were like, you never know, you never know. I'm like, I think I do, I think I do, because I didn't finish it. I was like 30 questions from the end when my timer went blip. So I felt like that was an automatic fail. But everyone told me that it wasn't, who were already VTS certified, who I saw at this conference. So uh, long story short, I didn't feel like I could really update this episode until I knew what these exam results were, mostly because I was terrified of the results and really disappointed in myself that I didn't feel like I did well. This is how I know I'm turning into my mother is because I was devastated by not doing well. So uh, we get the results via email. I got an email on uh Wednesday, two weeks ago at 1030 at night, my VTS mentor had texted me and said the results were out. Check your email, winky face, to which I thought to myself, don't care. No, it's a bust. Thanks. But I couldn't help it. So when I left work, I was driving home. I was like a half a mile from the hospital. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to pull over in the dark on the side of the road and look at this email and just sit and cry. So I pulled over, I opened my email, and in the subject heading of that email sent from the secretary of the board, it says, you did it. And what did I do? I screamed in my car. I ran around my car twice with my phone in my hand, got back in my car, and then drove back to the hospital, the half mile back to the hospital with my phone in my hand and the email open and put it in the face of my coworkers and said, what does this say? What does this say? Because I just, I just couldn't believe it. So I, I was uh, elated to share that moment of complete disbelief uh, with my coworkers at the hospital uh, at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night. <laughs> and they got to see me in my most stunned moment. Um, but it was wonderful. Big hugs all around, which is really cool. So I passed. I passed. 
crazy, but I passed. Uh, they, they curve that test really intensely, um, which means that they take into account questions that nobody got right. They might throw them out. Um, questions that everybody got right. They may, like, I think they kind of like have a point system. Like some questions are worth more than others. At least that's what they made it sound like, but it's all very secretive. And so you don't really know how you did until it's all over, until everything is calculated and calibrated, blah, blah, blah. But I passed that exam and that's a huge Woo, that's a huge deal. I mean, that's a, it's a big, it's a big, even as I talk about it, like sitting here, it doesn't feel very real. I had to print the email out and post it on the fridge like I was 12. Like, I mean, like I, it, the fact that I've got more letters after my name is, is a thing now. And I worked so hard to get that. I feel like I've been working towards that for almost, you know, for, for the eight years that I've, that I've been doing this and now it's real. And that's, that's so bizarre. Ah, uh, you know what I have to say too. Um, I was with two very good friends from my uh, first job with with the hosp- the specialty hospital that I work now. I was from a, net- a location in Dublin, California, and that's where um, I started working with this company. And there were two of my good friends from that hospital that were at this conference with me that saw me through the just emotional devastation of taking this test. And we're in New Orleans, right? It's like, like, I mean, you want to have fun. You want to eat food. You want to wear a stupid hat. You want to wear beads. And I just, I was, I just wasn't feeling it. I was just so sad. And they didn't let me be sad. Like they were like, nope, off we go. We're going to Bourbon Street. So what did we do the night the night after that exam? We went and saw some live music. We ate an amazing Italian dinner that was made by Cajun people, which was basically my dude. I mean, like the pork chop was a pork chop on top of a pork chop, like a pork chop topped with a smoked pork chop with ocean sauce, which is like some creamy seafood. It was amazing. It was amazing. Hands down. Amazing. Food in New Orleans is banging. And they didn't let me be sad and neither did the city. So I feel like we, we had a great time and they dragged my, my total ridiculously sad butt around that city. And we had a wonderful time and we sat by the Mississippi river and it was great. And I am forever thankful for those two humans in my life, making me, forcing me to have a good time. And I think what I want to do is I'm not going to drag out this episode for very long because I feel like, you know, it's been a while and I just want to give everybody the 411 on what was going on. But I did feel like I could at least, there's several stories that I kind of collect throughout my time doing this job that I kind of put as the one-offs. And so like, I think I'm going to give, do, tell you guys about the one-off uh, story that I've, that I've been saving for a little while, just, j- just, to, just to get back into the swing of things here. And then we'll go back to stupid breeds and we'll go back to, uh, you know, stories about viruses that will kill us all and all that kind of thing. So I'll start by saying that all veterinary technicians know that when you tell someone, uh, either a stranger, friend of a friend, family member, whoever, uh, when you tell someone that you are a veterinary technician for a living, uh, inevitably the response is, oh, that's so cool. What a fun job. You must pet puppies and kittens all day. And then following that, they say, you know, this one time my dog did this crazy thing, or, you know, my cat has been so itchy for like four months. It's like they inevitably there's some story that comes up about an animal in their lives. It's just what happens. We're used to it. It's fine. 
Um, the reality is, is I always think, oh God, here we go again. When like that person, like start, whoever that person is, when they start talking about the animal in their lives. But then I like find myself like really engaging in that conversation. Like, so initially my initial response is like, oh God, here we go. But then they, they keep going and I'm like, oh yeah, well, you know what, that, what, what that means is that, and then I completely will engage in whatever this is. So I know it's, it, it's ridiculous. It's like, it's like, it's like you hate to love it, but this, uh, this experience happened to me one time, uh, while I was on a camping trip in Yosemite, uh, it was that this amazing kind of like hostel slash communal campground thing called the Yosemite bug. Um, it's dope there. I highly recommend it. Um, me and my partner stayed in a cabin that wasn't heated, uh, note to self, get the heated one <laughs> that was, uh, um, uh, on the grounds of this place and you kind of like stay in the cabin, but they have this big communal log house where they serve really good food. Um, and they have like these bag lunches that you can buy for, I think it's like five bucks or eight bucks or something. And it's like this cute little brown bag lunch that you take on your hike with you. It's totally cute. The only thing I'll say is that they call it the Yosemite bug, um, like an insect bug and their theme on the inside of that log cabin is freaking bugs like everywhere. Like they have them like in glass cases. They have like little sculptures, they have drawings. And I'm not an insect person. Like I like fur, I like to treat furry things, not things with a lot of legs that move in ways that are terrifying. So that's my, that's the only thing I would say negatively about the bug was that like, I have to just kind of Zen the bug paraphernalia that's happening all over that place as decor. But one of the cool things in that log house, besides the food, because the food's dope, is they have this little like communal seating area with a bunch of couches and a bunch of books and um, a bunch of magazines. And they have this fireplace and it's totally cozy, cute. And everyone just hangs out there. Like, so you go to sleep in your cabins, but you kind of just hang out on the cozy couches in the big log house uh, by the fire. And there were several people that we met there who had really interesting backstories. Like this one lady was from New Zealand. Oh, and then there's, her friend was from Tasmania. And so she traveled from Tasmania to come to Yosemite. She was on this like six month long walkabout. Um, she said, Tasmania has all these farms and great wineries and you should totally go. And I'm like, oh my God, because they have Tasmanian devils, which are like this crazy thing that's dying of face cancer. There's an episode that will obviously come next talking about that one. But so they, uh, they encourage that type of interaction, but with their, with their guests at this place. So it was pretty cool. Um, there was one dude who I thought was, he was, he was a little out of place. Like he was one of those, he, maybe like a, he looked like a local is what he looked like, which I guess could be a thing. Like the locals would hang out there. Cause there's not really a lot around there. And it's like, you know, cozy fireplace, log cabin. I mean, who wouldn't want to be there? He was an older dude, kind of like a skinny guy with this kind of greased down gray hair that was a short haircut that had kind of grown out like a denim shirt and these kind of pleated jeans. And I, I think someone else had, we, I'd been chit-chatting with the Tasmania lady and I think we were talking about what we did for a living because I was like, wow, you have six months that you just get to bounce around. That's so amazing. Um what do you do? And I think she worked on one of these farms or something. And so I've started talking about that. I was a veterinary technician that works in a emergency. It sees dogs, cats, and rabbits. Um, and this dude overheard me and, you know, kind of engaged saying like, Oh, it sounds like a really interesting job. That's great. I love animals. And then he starts talking about, Oh yeah, I have a cat that lives in my trailer. Oh yeah. This is how I figured out that he was probably a local dude is because he was saying he lived in a trailer that was nearby. 
He's like, yeah, I've got, I've got an old cat that, that's, you know, he lives mostly outside, but he comes in to eat in my trailer. And so this one time, and he launches into the following story, which I will share with you today. Now, it's a bird story. Uh, I don't treat a lot of birds. Uh, they're kind of scary. I always feel like I'm going to kill them. That's always my first aim. Like, okay, here we're going to treat this bird. Let's try not to kill it. Uh, bird medicine is a whole world onto itself. Uh, speaking of following episodes, I feel like they just keep coming up in this update. Obviously, I need to be doing this more often. Uh, bird medicine is fascinating. They are they are dinosaurs. They are not built like the mammals that I know and love and treat on a daily basis. Uh, in particular, they can be very smart. Uh, corvids can be very smart. Corvids include ravens and crows and blue jays. They're known to be incredibly intelligent animals. This guy's story stars a crow. Uh, that his cat had caught and brought into his trailer. So the cat that he uh, that he was talking about that lived mostly outdoors and, and, and came indoors sometimes brought him presents, presents, uh, fairly regularly, dead things. Uh, our little outdoor kitty that we, that we feed at our house brings us dead things too. She brings us rats and mice. This guy's cat brought him a bird. Now, when the kitties bring you the gifts, they are not always 100% deceased. In his case, his cat had brought him this, uh, this, this small crow inside the trailer. Now, the bird was stunned, having been, you know, pierced by cat canines and dragged into a old crazy dude's trailer. So it looked dead at the time. But of course, he doesn't want the bird in his trailer. So he sees that the cat has brought this thing in. He reaches down to try to pick up this bird to get rid of it, and the bird lives. It flies up in the air. Now the bird is flying around inside of his trailer, uh, which is not not big. So in the course of this bird flying around, of course, it's squawking and screaming because it was almost killed by cat and then now is trapped inside trailer. So as this bird is flying around... Uh, he has a heater that's on in this trailer because in Yosemite it gets fairly it gets fairly cold, and so he had this heater on, like kind of in the corner. Um, the bird, in its chaos, manages to fly directly into this heater, which is on. Now, the bird had been wounded before it took off, and. In the course of it flying around, the trailer had been spraying bits of bird blood around the windows on his bed, his kitchen. It's all the same place, really. So thinking that he was really going to just deal with some bird blood spots, now to his horror, he sees the bird fly directly into this heater, which immediately causes the bird to scream, 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 scream. And the heater starts blowing out feathers, like blowing out burned feathers as this bird struggles inside this heater. But miraculously, the bird manages to fly out of the heater. Now, 
he had said that the blood had kind of occurred prior to heater insertion. So perhaps in some way the heater had cauterized the bird's wounds because now he's just dealing with burnt feathers flying around his trailer. He manages to open the door and the bird flies out back into the world. Now, he did not know if this bird was going to survive. Like, how uh, how is that bird? Like, is it going to come back from that? We don't know. But the reason why he knew that the bird lived is because the next morning he opened his trailer to, the cat had been inside. He opened his trailer to let the cat out and to, you know, take in some of the morning sunshine. He immediately hears a screaming crow, screaming, like really close to where his door is. Like the tree that's nearest his door, that's the one, there's like a branch that the crow is sitting in right there. And he looks up and he sees this scruffy, singed bird on this branch screaming at him. He's like, oh, okay, well, guess we, guess we made it. Uh, Let's the cat out, goes back inside goes about his day um but he has says and this is to date like to date telling the story in the yosemite bug that every morning that bird sits on that branch and waits for him to come outside just so that it can scream in his face so that bird has taken it upon himself to live the rest of his life out screaming in revenge at this dude and his cat that's an intelligent animal i mean come on that is that is an intelligent bird that is going to sit there and scream in the face of its enemy for the rest of its life and he's like as he's telling the story at the bug he says like yep it'll be there tomorrow morning that's what he does amazing My dedicated fans, thank you so, so very much for tuning in to this episode of Cat Disgusted. Uh, this one's kind of special for me. I feel like I'm back. Um, I've come out from the, I've come out on the other side of two years of work working towards this specialty, and I freaking did it. And I'm, I'm terribly humbled by the experience and uh, and grateful for everyone who saw me through it, including you guys. So thank you. Um, I will see you guys on the next episode and many more to come. Nicole Dickerson, RVT, VTS, ECC. What madness! Let's all celebrate and have a good time.